ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Jen Brizelli, Chief Design Strategy Officer at MedPal, and we're going to talk about employee experience today. This episode is brought to you by Zeppelin. Design tools can do almost anything, and with Zeppelin, they can go even further. Stop spending your time preparing design files for your developers and your PMs. Let Zeppelin do it for you. Show user journeys, organize screens, highlight components automatically. See how you can go from design to production faster at zeppelin.io. Hi, Jen. Hey, great to be here. We're so excited to learn from you, but before we get started, tell us your background story and what you're doing at MadPow and what you've been doing before. Sure. So my origin story actually goes back to pre-design. I actually, as a student in school, I studied physics and I majored in physics because I was naturally curious and wanted to understand everything about the world. And, you know, at least as a 17-year-old, physics represented the most fundamental understanding of everything. So I had to start there, start at the bottom, work my way up. And I really loved science, but also, you know, it was a very interdisciplinary kind of student and loved a lot of different topics and always kind of resisted being pinned into that one particular world. So ultimately, you know, through school, I fell in love with peer tutoring and the challenge of understanding, you know, mental models. And I wouldn't have had the language for this when I was younger, but I can look back now and understand this is what was going on. So I said, well, that's teaching, right? I think I like teaching. I don't want to work in a lab and, and go to grad school and fight for grant money. I, I took my physics degree. I, I got certified to teach and I taught high school physics for almost a decade. And I loved it at first, but uh, over time started to feel like I was kind of solving the same design problem year over year. So basically like a lot of, unlike a lot of teachers that I know, I mean, if, if your listeners have friends and family that are in education, a lot of folks struggle the first few years and then kind of hit a rhythm. And for me, it was the opposite. I really enjoyed the first few years because it was difficult and new and I didn't have the answers and there was a lot of problem solving and there was a lot of work to really get into and understand students' brains and how they're thinking about and constructing knowledge. And so I don't want to suggest I had mastered it all after a couple of years. There was a lot of learning still to happen for me, but I realized I was looking for more opportunities to design things outside of the classroom. And so I just by virtue of sheer luck, uh, happened to find out that the world of information and UX design existed. I had no idea when I was younger that this existed, like many of us, and got very interested in information design, communication design, UX, ultimately decided to leave teaching go back to grad school, study design. I studied, you know, communication design, service design, systems thinking, et cetera. And, you know, the rest is history. Really, I ultimately can tell that story now, could never have made those connections at the time, but just knew I was following my gut, you know, where my curiosity took me. But really, I, I learned a lot in the classroom as a teacher that I still bring into my practice today as a designer. And I realized, you know, along the way, what I was doing in the classroom was designing learning experiences. And good teachers don't just transmit information, they build a classroom environment, a classroom culture that facilitates learning, and they put pieces in place that allow students to construct their own knowledge, right? That are not just literally lecturing and transmitting info, because if you do that, you're not a good teacher and you're not going to have the outcomes you want. So there's some good parallels there that I'm sure we'll get into later. But realizing that I wanted to apply that design process to other examples outside of teaching and education. So basically, after I finished grad school, 
basically wanted to take that design process into other domains and, you know, spend some time in a couple different agencies and places. And I landed at MadPow. And MadPow is, is a design, a strategic design consultancy. I guess I would describe it as it. Um, we sometimes think about ourselves as an agency, sometimes in consulting, a little bit of both. But we really focus on helping clients who are what we would consider purpose-driven or mission-driven, who are trying to move the needle to improve someone's health or literacy or well-being outcomes as much as just, you know, get them to click on their cart, buy the product, you know, whatever it might be. So we do a lot of work with healthcare and financial services and some other sort of, I would say, social good, uh, social sector work. And in doing that, when I landed at MadPow, I was, I was like, this is great. I love being at an agency. I love getting exposure to all different types of um, domains and clients and different types of problems to solve. And over the years at MadPow, I've just uh, taken on a little bit more and more responsibility each year. And now I am, as you mentioned, the chief design strategy officer. I help run the organization from a business mechanics perspective. But in my role, I also essentially lead what we call our delivery team, which are all the folks who are practitioners who, who do billable client work. And that team basically is composed of a number of different disciplines. Each of those disciplines, we consider a, a community of practice. We've really, and this is something we can get into, we've, we've really moved away from thinking of ourselves as siloed departments or teams and really more as communities of practice that convene around different forms of expertise. So things like experience research, experience strategy, service design, UX and product design, visual design, organizational design and design transformation, behavior change design, I'm leaving some out, development, you know. So basically, futures thinking, systems thinking, all of these are, are things that folks at MadPow do and bring to the table. And so I get the deep joy and pleasure of leading that team and, and being able to set up the circumstances for all of them to be successful and to help our clients improve the lives of the people they serve. What makes you so passionate about employee experience in particular? Why is it this particular topic, this particular phrasing, why is it important for you and for others? Yeah, and I, I think the gen answer for this, and then there's like the business answer. So I'll try to give both. So for me personally, I've actually long found a real affinity and passion for looking at the humans who are either influencing or providing or mediating the experience that the end user has. I think this comes from my time as a teacher. And, and to be quite frank, it probably comes from a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because as a teacher, I, I very acutely experienced the ways in which teachers are supported and empowered to create good learning experiences and the ways that they're not. So, you know, coming into design, I was sort of already wired to be looking at where are the places where we're trying to design and deliver a good user experience, but there's another human involved in the delivery? Are we empowering that person to deliver the good experience? Are we doing everything we can for that human, both for the ethical reason that we care about that human and want good for them, but also for the bottom line? That is, if they do a good job in their delivery, in their employee work, then that'll have a downstream impact on the user experience. So for me personally, I think I was just naturally kind of attuned to look at and care about who these other folks are in the experience ecosystem. But also from a business perspective, this is something at MadPow and, and out in the wider world, we're seeing, I think the world at large is kind of waking up to this fact that humans who are part of an organization aren't cogs in the machine. We know they're not robots and being able to support them in the role that they do within the organization, as well as fully formed humans is, is both good for those humans and it's good for business. You know, it's in that nice overlap between the two. So as organizations mature, I think what we're realizing is that that's more than just 
HR policies or vacation policies. It's more than just specific tools that we provide our employees. It's the whole infrastructure and ecosystem around them that we have to build and, and maintain so that they both have a good experience as employees and then also deliver really high quality value to the humans that are you know, the end user or consumer. I've heard an opinion about our IT sector that these years, basically the whole SaaS world is limited by the productivity of the developer workforce. Therefore, and there's like limited supply there. So it's entirely talent-driven market. And also the adjacent professions uh, such as, you know, product management or design, they're all limited and they're going to burn out if they don't have enough developers to build what they want and need. So it's a really interesting angle. Definitely talent-driven market these days we're operating in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is where I would really encourage anybody who's in a position of power or who has the ability to influence the employee employee experience itself really has a responsibility now to to do something about that, right? And again, I think there are both these sort of like quick wins and very surface level things we can do that would make to make a role enticing even to just as far as attract talent at the very beginning of that experience, right? How do you convey to candidates or potential talent that you are an organization where that person can come and do some of their best work? How do you communicate that? And then how do you give you know, them the opportunity to, to live that? How do you make good on that promise? It's a little bit like when brands talk about a brand promise, right? How do we make good on that brand promise? Well, as an organization, how do I make good on what I'm actually trying to provide for my employees? Because it is a two-way street. It's not just employee provides me labor and I provide them pay. It's what are we constructing together? We're doing something, whether we're literally building products or we're building knowledge together, which in turn influences the end user. So even just as early in the process as how we communicate and attract talent, there's a lot of work to do. And then of course, from there, once folks join and and to your point, how do we actually find and source and keep the talent we need, but also once they're in, how do we support them again as, as fully formed humans and not just robots that have a single task or have um, you know, certain roles and responsibilities that we don't look outside of. So I'm kind of trying to encourage anybody listening to this to widen the aperture of how they think about employee experience, because even if you don't care about them as humans, it'll also improve the bottom line. How would you describe or decompose employee experience? What what exactly are the parts of it? Yeah, I think, and I do want to preface this with the, the fact that like, I'm not an HR professional and I'm not an operations person by training or by trade. And so what I bring to this is a, is a design lens, a design thinking lens in the work that we've done, both at MadPow and then the work that I've done and seen myself firsthand. It encourages me and others to, again, take that wider view of the whole ecosystem. So There are at sort of the most granular level bits and pieces that are part of the employee experience, like the tools they use, right? The actual like literal, whether it's physical tools, if we're talking about physical things or digital tools. So there are those types of small examples within the experience that do have a big impact on how they're able to do their job and and deliver value for customers. There are also the non-tangible things like policies and processes, you know, formally written rules and policies, as well as unspoken rules and policies that exist within an organization around how work gets done and how expectations are met. Any organization that doesn't consciously design those or think about those is is putting themselves at a disadvantage, you know, in light of everything that we, again, see in the world and, and know that we need to rely on our employees to deliver good experiences. 
Um, but I think if you even go up a level from there, you, you really get to looking at the whole culture of an organization and understanding how the cultural context in which people are being asked to do their job really influences the nature and you know value of the work that they do. So in a way, it's it's like, you know, there are the things that we put in the hands of our employees. Those are the tools. There are the rules or, or the guardrails or the things that they're working within and have to move around. And then there's just like the water we all swim in, which is culture. And it really influences how employees do the work they do. So I, I would encourage most folks to think about those different altitudes, because a lot of organizations I observe kind of focus on one to the exclusion of the others. Um, and that's trouble. What are the most common mistakes you see being made in this direction, both in the logistics and in the culture? Well, maybe let's just do logistics first and touch on the culture later. Yeah, I think largely there's a tendency or a temptation to oversimplify both the nature of a need, an unmet need that might be identified, as well as the solution. So kudos to any organization that is committing or investing in employee experience, But that means that the the work that you need to do, the research, as I would call it, that you need to do to understand how to improve your employees' experience and, and how to empower them has to be really good, robust, in-depth research. Can't be, you know, easy, fast, simple, ask a few people a couple questions and that's your answer. So you've really got to apply, you know, a, a good, robust design or experience research lens to those experiences and do the due diligence to truly understand what factors are at play. I often find when we do this work with clients, there's a hypothesis around where employees are kind of stuck or having trouble or, you know, could perform better. But often the like real reason, the root cause is like way upstream, you know, is sort of philosophically speaking and finding where that, whatever that item might be, whatever that root cause might be and, and kind of solving it at the source is key. So, so one, I would say, you know, definitely not oversimplifying or cutting corners around the understanding phase. And then the other is, again, not oversimplifying the solution we might try to provide or the improvement we try to make. For example, you know, identifying that employees maybe need support or a different type of tool or something that's a little easier to use. There's a temptation to just to buy something off the shelf, whether it's a training or a resource or a tool. But, but again, I think sometimes that can be putting a Band-Aid over something that's a little bit more complex. So I would say in a nutshell... If, if you're an organization asking that question, it's don't cut the corners. It doesn't have to be an unwieldy kind of, you know, huge investment, but just doing the work to both understand on a very deep, robust level what your employees experience, and then also to really explore solutions that may not be so cut and dried or, you know, copy paste, but they might need to be a little bit more unique and custom for your organization. Whose job is it to take care of it? Um... And at what scale a founder can no longer do that and they have to delegate it? For example, you are not the founder of MedPow, but you are taking care of it for all the designers. On the other hand, this is more, well, your design shop, but imagine there would be a design department and developer department that would be a design strategist and probably engineering strategist taking care of those folks. Should it be by industry? Should it be the founder? Should it be the HR department? Can you split it? Who's taking care of that? I think everybody has a role to play, including the employees themselves. <laughs> it's probably the obvious answer, but I think this okay. is a 100%. I, it's a little like, you know, it's a little bit like being in a relationship of any kind. And people talk about both the importance of communicating needs and expectations, as well as setting boundaries. And to pull in a metaphor that maybe is tough to apply here, but I think within an organization, the folks with the most power have a certain responsibility to be looking out for and thinking about this. And they do set 
top down, a cultural tone. And then at the same time, employees bottom up do have a responsibility for themselves to be able to communicate when asked, what are the tools or, you know, circumstances that need to shift to allow them to do better and more fulfilling work. So I don't know, it's a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I would also say that it, it also needs to be an emergent process. And that's really difficult for a lot of organizations who are, are more, you know, still comfortable with the notion of leadership sets a vision. That vision guides a strategy and a roadmap that that in turn produces goals. Those goals are handed to the employees and the employees meet the goals and receive positive incentive to do so. You've got to kind of turn that on its head a little bit. And that's terrifying. I know it firsthand, but really kind of reversing that logic and allowing some of the most important insights to emerge from the teams and then building the infrastructure to allow those insights and that feedback and those lived experiences to become evident, right? So how do we collect that information? Are we building opportunities to gather feedback more frequently, both between and among, as well as up and down in the organization? Are we asking our employees to not just tell us what they like or don't like about their experience or what tools they're using, but also co-design some solutions, you know, be part of the process of identifying what we might change for them. So emergence is the name of the game, but it's, that's, that's scary and it's terrifying. And it can be a little bit of some, uh, it can feel like a business risk to operate in a way where we ask everybody to contribute to this process. In our pre-recording chat, you mentioned a book, uh, Reinventing Organizations, when uh, companies grow from being hierarchical, color-coded red and, and onwards. Could you tell us how that emerging uh, process can unfold within an organization? Yeah, in fact, and I would I would recommend we can include a link. I, if it's, it's of interest, I would absolutely read the book. It is called Reinventing Organizations. I'm, I believe the author is um, Frederick Lelou, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm terrible with remembering author names. But but basically the idea is, and this is, this is a, a broadly held notion, so he's not the only one who writes about this, um, that organizations today in 2022, you, you know, need to have evolved, many have, some haven't, beyond what would have been old-fashioned hierarchical kind of command and control style leadership structures. And the idea here isn't that every organization everywhere should be striving to you know, evolve towards a more collaborative or, or more co-design emergent sort of organization. He, he uses the term evolutionary a lot. You know, this is an evolution process. But there are organizations even today that need to operate more uh, in a conventional hierarchical manner. You know, the military is one that is still going to be most successful if there is one person in the top of the chain of command who is saying this is what we're doing because to, to have hey soldiers how are we feeling today let's take a vote let's come to consensus before we decide you know so like there's there's certainly I think an important nuance here that not every organization in every sector and doing every kind of work needs to move towards a version where uh, employees are empowered and you know part of the process of defining what they do. But generally speaking, moving in that direction is both good for the humans involved and good for the business. So that work of this particular author, as well as others that I've been absorbing and even bringing within MadPow and the way we work, but also certainly we bring to our clients in the work that we do for them, is really encouraging an organization to, to do some introspection and ask, you know, where are we as far as how we empower our people? Is it very top down? Is it very hierarchically driven? And if it is, does it need to be? Is there an opportunity to invite more of the folks who are on the front lines, for example, if they are customer facing, or even people who aren't in a customer facing role, 
but are doing work on the back house or back of house, as we call it in service design, right? Doing things that aren't visible to the users. You know, I'm writing code or I'm designing screens. What do they have to share? And giving them a little bit more of a voice, like I said earlier, can be very terrifying, but actually leads an organization to a more agile place. And when I say agile, uh, I don't mean software development agile. I just mean agile as in adaptable and flexible, which, you know, I, I we were talking about this earlier, but Basically, I think that's kind of the secret sauce for an organization right now is to say, you know, we can't predict the future. It's becoming increasingly difficult to even forecast the future. So if we can't control it, what can we control? Well, you can't control the future, but you can control how quickly your organization learns and adapts to new information. So part of that is figuring out how to encourage all of the people in your organization to be more agile, to be quicker learners, to be open and to change and flexible about their role. And in order to do all of that, I would argue that some of what's in the book you referenced is kind of a prerequisite, right? Changing our organizational stance from a command and control style to more of a sense and respond kind of mindset. I'm not sure if it's that book or another one, but it basically the last stage of development is like an entirely flat, headless, almost headless organization. I think the color code is teal. I'm not sure yep. like why I, uh, is that it? Okay. Yep. Do you believe in those headless flat organizations? I do, but I don't. Okay. And here's why. And actually it's, I'm glad you mentioned that, right? So there's this really, I think, common misconception that if we follow this evolutionary process kind of to its extreme, we end up with, like you say, a, a headless organization and there are implications in that, that that sound like, again, like we're making decisions in a consensus-driven way. So nothing gets done unless everybody agrees. Or there's nobody in charge, and it's just a free-for-all. It's anarchy. And I understand that. That's very logical. I mean, that was, as I mentioned, some of what MadPow is kind of uh, internally you know, shifting the way that we work a little bit. And that's something we're even exploring internally. You know, What does it mean to have a little bit less of a hierarchical leadership structure? And it's a kind of natural extension of the logic, but it's not actually the goal. There's a different color in that system that's before teal, that's green. And green is an organization where there is consensus-driven decision-making for better, for worse. Individuals have veto power and there is less of a leader sort of dynamic at the top. And there's a lot of problem with that. Like you can't get much done, you know, if one person can veto a process or if there's nobody kind of looking out at the kind of top level of, of, you know, visibility to say, I see this, I need to lead us this direction. I guess what I'm trying to say is the concern about a headless organization is real and those happen. And that's what happens when you don't actually embrace the evolutionary process to its end, you know, follow it through, stay with it. Because if you get through that process, or ideally even take an end run around it, you don't end up with a headless anarchy group of people that have no leader and everybody's just doing what they want. What you end up with is actually a really nicely organized network instead of a, you know, a hierarchy. And I'm like literally with my hands, you know, making this like hierarchy instead of a hierarchy, you have a network and in a network, things don't necessarily exist above or below other things. They just are connected in different ways. And so different parts of a network are connected with different proximities and different strengths of connections. And if you can empower the individuals in that network, so now we're talking about humans as nodes in this network, what you can do is empower something called distributed leadership. So it's not that there's no leadership or that everybody is doing whatever they want, but that we set expectations for how decisions get made in a way that means decisions still get made because we don't wait for consensus, 
but that they're made in a way that leads to learning and growth. And when we get things wrong, we take in that data and become smarter as an organization as well as individuals. So it's more about shifting away from a hierarchical to a more network or egalitarian setup, but it doesn't mean we don't have leadership and it doesn't mean we don't need vision. And it doesn't mean we don't need somebody still kind of looking at the sky, knowing where our North Star is, providing a compass heading. But I guess what I would I would liken it to, the metaphor here is, instead of having a leader that is barking out directions, turn by turn directions, you know, turn left, turn right, whatever, do this, do that. We have a leader or leadership who set a compass heading and say, we're trying to go north. Sometimes we might have to divert a little bit, but now once we've gone over around this obstacle, let's get us back on track and head north again. So it's somebody keeping a North Star or a compass heading in mind and helping the organization stay on track versus providing step-by-step journey instructions and, and roadmaps and, and dictation of where to head. And again, we're speaking in like abstract philosophical terms, right? So like, what does this look like in the ground in a real organization? It means taking some chances where you give people decision-making power that you might not have given them before. And I'll say very briefly, one of the ones that I find most interesting and powerful, both in the client work we do as well as internally, is a model called the advice model for decision-making, which basically says anybody in an organization is empowered to make a decision about something they identify and need. Like, hey, something's going wrong or this thing needs to be addressed. And they are allowed to make a decision and take action with two expectations. One, that they consult everybody who is going to be meaningfully affected by the decision. So they need to talk to anybody that is is in some way going to be impacted by this decision uh, or this action. And then also they need to consult anybody that has special expertise in that topic or in that matter. So if somebody does that, even if they are the most junior employee who would normally have no power, no decision-making leverage, no agency or autonomy to take an action, if they talk to everybody who would be affected by the decision and they talk to anybody that has special knowledge or expertise, they should theoretically gather enough information to make a good decision and they should be empowered to make it. And then if they get it wrong, and that will happen, they also are empowered to take responsibility, make amends, make it right, and learn for the next time. And that can be wildly powerful and successful. I know what people are thinking. That's terrifying. What if they make a really bad decision about something that's very high stakes? You can put protections in place so that a very high stakes kind of decision is not actually going to be decided by someone like that. They might bring that conversation to somebody in the process of seeking advice and find that others involved want to be part of the decision process and or will take action in their place, you know, instead of them, or will say, I, I'll, I'll take this on if you'd like me to. But I think that if we, if we get brave and we trust our employees to sometimes make some of those decisions instead of making them for them, people would be surprised at, at the power that happens there. And doing that both allows for things to happen in a little bit more fluid and agile and flexible way. So again, back to a learning organization, like we can respond to market conditions, we can respond to things that might, you know, pop up and require attention more quickly, more flexibly. Um, But it also makes our employees feel more engaged. They feel engaged in their work. They feel like they have agency and control over what they're doing. And that in turn has been shown time and time again to improve productivity and engagement and have a good downstream effect on the user experience. So these things aren't just high-flying philosophical ideas. They have material effect on the business. 
MadPow is big on service design and we've actually interviewed your own Eleni Statoulis uh, probably half a year ago about that. I'm curious, how can service design and the deliverables you can produce be applied so that you can have something tangible about your employee experience? And this can range from, you know, some very simple employee handbook or, you know, chart of how a person gets onboarded or something like that. What deliverables can a new organization craft to establish good experience practices? Yeah, well, and I, you know, we mentioned earlier that there's kind of these three altitudes, if you will. Service design is is exactly the kind of approach or the type of thinking that is well suited for addressing different altitudes of an experience. So, if we're thinking about individual touch points or tools, and we're thinking about processes and protocols, and then we're thinking about the culture we all swim in, service design just as an approach is really well set up to look at that whole ecosystem and look at all the little pieces and parts, and so you know, using the tools of service design, like service blueprinting and other types of mapping, you can create a much clearer picture of how all of those things interact with each other and identify, again, where there are challenges or gaps or things that might need to be improved, changed, et cetera, better supported. A lot of times, you know, identifying a tool that is a problem is a little easier because you can say this particular software that we use is is hard and clunky to use, or, you know, this particular task that this person is assigned to do would be more efficient if this other person did it at this other point in time. So, so doing things like blueprinting can really make that visual in a way that maybe is not really well understood. And even if people understand it in their minds, just having it visualized can be very powerful. So that's, that's kind of like piece number one for, you know, the answer to that question is just visualizing the ecosystem through a service design lens helps people make sense of the different altitudes of things that can happen in that experience, as well as where there are potential opportunities to improve how the employees do their work. And then the other part of that is, to your point, kind of looking at like, what are the tools and artifacts that come out of that, rather than just as an understanding artifact to paint the picture of something, what are the things we produce as far as solutions And a lot of that ends up being driven by the same old design process that we apply everywhere else. You know, whatever tool we're talking about, we're asking, what does this person need to be able to accomplish and how can we, how can we support that? Uh, It just means that we look at things beyond the screen. So sometimes it's creating different policies and processes, creating different roles and expectations. You know, you mentioned onboarding, right? Sometimes that means we just need to externalize what's locked in people's brains to make a better onboarding experience. So maybe we need to take things that have been kind of unspoken rules that we expect people to pick up on and actually write them out and put them in a format that people can access, put them in a central location, an intranet or whatever you know tools a company might use, and to externalize things that people don't usually think they need to externalize. Other times it's not actually creating the physical thing for that purpose, but it's actually changing the process. So back to onboarding again, you know, when somebody joins an organization, there are a host of both written and unwritten rules, and you could hand them a document or show them a, you know, an internet site that, that outlines all that stuff. But you can also set up better onboarding programs that involve, you know, mentors or buddies and folks that they engage with. And none of this is new. None of this is like things that organizations don't already know. But what I don't see a lot of organizations doing is putting all of these types of things together in a holistic view, right? There are people in an organization whose job it is to care about the employee from an HR perspective, you know, and they're thinking about those HR tactics, logistics around onboarding, you know, employee support, et cetera. Then there are the people's like direct managers and that direct manager for an employee is is really just kind of concerned with making sure this employee is performing 
hopefully they care about them as a human and are, are looking out for their well-being. But really, their their goal as a manager is to make sure this person stays happy, healthy, fulfilled so they can do the role we're paying them to do and perform at a high level. And then there are people in like leadership who are really looking at all of these folks as dots on a data chart. That's oversimplifying. I hate to say it, but like that's, you know, they're looking at this from the organizational lens and they're asking what are the different parts of the business doing and what can we provide as an organization across the whole? So there's a lot more influence on culture there than I think people realize. So, you know, it's almost like, how can you know what's going on at each of those altitudes if you don't actually map it and like do the research to put it in a visual form? And then from there, you can figure out who needs to talk to who and what things we might need to create or support. That's a lot of things to do. <laughs> yes. What's your advice for small organizations when you don't have a dedicated HR person and when you don't like when the founder is wearing many hats? And I found myself often uh, reinventing the wheel because, for example, as a founder of Uselist, co-founder, we are not mature enough to have like a full-blown HR process yeah. it's not it's not yet sustainable however there's definitely something happening in the team building front and what's the good way to gracefully build it so that we don't reinvent the wheel but also don't go fully bureaucratic like from from day three you know totally yeah it's i find that it's so much more art than science but if your objectives are in the right place you can let that guide you so you know to your point like a term like team building I see organizations that think team building and they think we need to have an ice cream Sunday day, not you know? retreat. And, no, right, <laughs> no. You know, and like, and it, but, but that's kind of the thing is like, what's the actual objective of team building? Is it to make people forget that they're at work? Because that shouldn't be the objective. Um, is the objective to provide people a little bit of a perk? Like this is a carrot. And if you do a good job, you get this reward. Uh, you know, that has mixed returns. It depends on what kind of behavioral schools of thought you're applying in your workplace and what the culture is like. But, but I think if as an organization, even a small organization that does not have a lot of folks that have the luxury of time to think through or invest in some of these sort of bigger picture views, it really boils down to asking your employees directly as humans What do they need? What do they need to function as humans who care about their work and who, even in a hostile work environment, I would argue that humans still have needs that they want to get filled in some way by their work. And if we can just acknowledge that and find ways to support those needs in the work environment, yeah, ethically speaking, that's the right thing to do because that's, that's what we as humans owe each other, like decency, right? But forget that for a second. Again, I'm trying to make the argument for all the business folks here. If you do that, it will pay off because those individuals that you have found a way to meet their needs for agency and having an impact on the world or being able to see the fruit of labor or being able to know that they just did one small thing that had an impact on somebody else with their day. If you give people the opportunity to make change and enjoy the agency that comes with a productive work environment, they will in turn make that environment that much more productive for all. So to again, boil it down, if you're a tiny company and you're like, I can't do any of this stuff, this is way too much. Philosophically, I'm overwhelmed. Start by just talking to your employees. If you're not doing that, Make it safe for your employees to tell you how they really feel. And that might be as far as you get, because right now that organization, like that, that psychological safety in the organization might not be there. So if that's not there, start there. Work on building an environment where your employees have the opportunities and the safety to tell you what they need 
And then once they're comfortable doing that, you can start working on ways to do that, figure out how you can meet their needs. And that can be something that you invite those employees into the process of co-designing. How do we actually solve this for you? I'll give you a quick example because we've worked with, we were, it got really meta. We worked with an organization that was, uh, I won't share too many details, but they're a large health organization here in the States and their IT experience for their internal employees was just all over the place. So for some employees, whether it was when they were first starting or if they needed to to get something, um, different equipment or, or they had a problem and they needed something to be fixed. If they were in person, they had started to institute kind of in-person little, you know, like help stations basically in their offices. And that had created a really nice kind of almost personalized concierge experience. So instead of my laptop, you know, the M key is broken, it's sticking and I have to enter a ticket and, you know, somebody will fix it or somebody will they'll have to send my laptop in and they'll give me something new. They could just take it up to a desk, kind of like the Apple store and just say, this is broken. Can you fix it? And that was a really great development as far as just, you know, supporting the employee experience, very tactical, very like low altitude, fix this tool. But when they went virtual because of the pandemic, they lost access to that employee experience. And they were like, how do we provide that same kind of personalized IT experience for our internal employees now that we don't have our in-person help desks the way that we did. And uh, I won't I won't get into the details of how they solved it because it's proprietary, but I will no, say this. it's an intrigue. I'm so intrigued now. <laughs> the answer though is this. They didn't just decide as an IT organization to, to try something. They actually enlisted the help of their employees to tell them what they would need and to tell them and to co-design what the solutions might be. So we helped them with this. This is why I'm giving this example. But what was most important was that we went in with them, the leaders in this organization, and we talked to employees in different parts of the organization. And we really made a point to understand what was valuable about that in-person help desk. Was it the in-person part? Was it the face-to-face part? Was it the convenience? Was it that it was you know, co-located within the building that they were working in? You know, was it the social setting? Because it became a little bit of like a water cooler moment for people. Like, what are the factors that actually made that important? And then take those factors, strip them from the you know, actual literal in-person solution. And how do we bring those factors into a virtual setting? And the, the leadership didn't just say, we're going to bring this virtual, go back to the setting where people fill out tickets and mail things. But we worked with the internal employees, gave them tools to kind of help us co-design solutions and came up with some pretty interesting little ways that are are relatively minor tweaks on a normal IT repair process, but really made a big difference because they were co-designed with the people that were going to be the recipients of the solution. And that's a principle we use in design everywhere. So that is not, that should not be new to anybody listening to this. If we're doing any work in the world with end users we should be doing research to understand their needs and then making sure what we design actually meets their needs. Go a step further and engage those end users to help co-design the solution. And if you do that with employees, you get the benefit of both better solutions and the employees are invested in it because they helped create it. So I guess it kind of boils down to talk to your people, find out what they need, and then co-design ways to meet those needs. I have one Last topic for you to discuss. And of course, it's again an afterthought and it's a question about culture, something that everybody wants, but nobody knows exactly how to build. And as just, again, it is happening, it very often comes as an afterthought, unfortunately, after yeah. after the business questions yeah. are solved. Uh, what is your opinion, sentiment and advice on this? So culture is uh, it's such a hot topic right now. 
And it goes, I think, very much hand in hand with some of the things we talked about earlier around creating an adaptive, agile learning organization. Doing that means empowering people to keep learning, to reward and value learning. And what is learning but actually trying things and learning and sometimes making mistakes, right? So so all of those kind of factors point to, huh, we need to create a, a culture where it's okay to learn, meaning screw up sometimes. So, you, you know, I would encourage folks to think about like, even if you're like, if, if a person who's listening to me right now is thinking, I don't have much control over anything, I'm just one person. Even within the circles that you work within, you as an individual can become a safe place for other people to think through, make mistakes, talk about things, be safe for people to be wrong around you. And that can spread in a really powerful way. But to answer it at a higher level, you know, as we talked about these different altitudes of employee experience, do they have the right tools at the basic level? You know, are the processes well-defined? The highest level is this culture and culture is created both top down and bottom up. So culture isn't foosball table, free lunch, you know, that kind of stuff. It's how we convey as an organization, the values of the organization for our people to know that this is what we care about. And also, how do we empower the employees in a way that actually matches those values? I would argue if folks are like at a loss, you know, there's a billion articles about culture right now. A lot of them reference psychological safety. A lot of them are really focused on design for inclusion and equity and diversity, which is key. I think the world has kind of figured out that these are things we can't just solve with like small checkbox lists of things we do, but really need to embrace philosophically a more diverse and more inclusive environment. I'd love to recommend there's a book called An Everyone Culture, I think is the title. We can make sure we link it correctly. But it's about what are called deliberately developmental organizations. And what that means is developmental in the sense of human development. So as adults, even though we are adults, and we are not children, we are still learning, we are still growing, and we do that till the day we die. So if an organization really, really wants to empower its people in the most significant way, it means understanding that every single human in your organization is on some journey of their own, some trajectory of learning and growing. And if your organization can be set up in a way that empowers that growth, that is both going to have all the impacts that I talked about earlier, and that is going to be a good culture. People are going to look at your organization and say, the culture here is great. And it's not because there's free beer every Friday. It's because I love being at this place. Because even though some days it's hard and it's challenging and I want to pull my hair out, I find that intellectually stimulating. I feel safe to make mistakes. I feel safe to give feedback. I, I feel safe to receive feedback. I know it's done with love. Like, let's get wishy-washy, man. Give feedback and constructive, hard conversations with love. That's a pretty good culture. But what would it take for your leadership to do that and then all the way down to the most junior employee to do that? So again... High-flying philosophical ideas, but if you want like the most basic thing, read that book or just read about the concept of deliberately developmental organizations and ask yourself, what's one baby step we could take to make our organization a place that is safe for people to be themselves, to give and receive feedback, and to express that they aren't sure or that they've made a bad decision or that they've made a mistake and are learning from it. If you make it a safe place for that, it doesn't mean everyone's going to start screwing up all the time. It actually means they're going to learn and grow faster. And I think that's what we all want. Amazing. We've got to wrap up somewhere. Uh, so unfortunately, <laughs> what are Perfect. two things that every little company can start doing to better do 
at what we're talking about today? <laughs> yeah, I think one is to really check in if you haven't with your employees to see really what their experience is like. So one, we can't talk about employee experience if we don't actually have a baseline understanding of what it's like. I mean, this can be as simple as shadow them for a day, you know, do the undercover boss thing, whatever you need to do to understand what is it actually like to be an employee and what is their experience day to day, um, because you will learn a lot and you will probably identify places where you can make their job easier and you should want to make their job easier. How do you do that? Tell us about the methods and especially remotely. Talk to them. If you can't shadow them, if, if you can actually be in that place with them, if you can be physically with them, that's great. You know, if you can follow them for a day, but even if you can't get into contextual ethnographic types of research methods, talk to them, have more frequent, more casual conversations, build channels if they don't exist for your employees to share feedback, anonymous or not, right? But just, just make those lines of communication more open at all times that's that's as simple as it needs to be. Are there all kinds of like really complicated, robust research methods we could apply here? Sure. But like, forget all that. If you can't right now in a leadership role, describe where you know the pain points are in your employee's experience, then you don't know enough. You should be able to tell me where you know they have a hard time or what their least favorite part of their job is or what the most frustrating tool or, or task is for them. It doesn't need to be that you know this on an individual by individual basis, like Jane likes this and Joe likes that, but it just needs to be that broadly speaking, you know where the big pain points are among your employees' day-to-day -day experience. If you don't know that, that should be priority number one. Go find that. And you might enlist the help of others in your organization. You might go talk to people directly. You can enlist external consultants. You can do things via anonymous surveys. But I'm a big fan of just listening deeply, active listening with empathy and compassion. And honestly, if you as a leader in an organization can't engage with an employee, and if they don't trust you enough to be honest with you, well, that's an interesting piece of data too, isn't it? Right? So start by talking to them. That's, that's as simple as it gets. You've got to understand what something is before you can ask yourself how we might improve it. And number two. So one is learn and yep. talk. One is learn okay. what the baseline experience is like. And then number two, actually, I, I was going to say this even before you asked me that, but it fits right into that, which is if nothing else, build more frequent and more candid feedback into the experience for everybody. Because learning requires actually sharing and reflecting. And you can't do any of that if we're not learning as we go what is what the impact of our actions are. So when I say feedback, I don't just mean one-on-one -on -one feedback from a manager to a report. I don't even just mean like an annual performance review or, or that kind of feedback, you know, if you do 360 feedback throughout the year, as much and as frequent as you can have it happen. There are some great tools for this. There are some platforms out there that make it really easy to like gather and share feedback, you know, anonymous or not, very frequently, like even day-to-day -day in a very lightweight way so it doesn't feel cumbersome. But again, you don't need to invest in those big tools if you just start small and build an expectation or places in the day or in the week where everybody pauses to share feedback with somebody else. Somebody this week that they worked with frustrated them. Find the right way to tell them what frustrated you about that or vice versa. So basically, one is learn. Learn about your employee experience. If you don't know what it's like right now, how are you ever supposed to make it better? And two is Even without knowing where your pain points are, I can tell you every organization would benefit from building more frequent, more candid feedback between everybody at all times, because that allows us to learn where we can grow and where our biggest strengths lie to help other people grow. 
And if you enlist the help of employees within that process, instead of relying on leadership to do everything top down, uh, you'll be that much more effective. Love this. Thanks so much. That was very helpful. Definitely easier said than done. Uh, definitely, definitely. It but, is. And um, I, there's I know hope. What? I'll say this. There's a ton of like books and high-flying, like I said, philosophical ideas about this. Um, what there's not, there is not really a roadmap for this. And I've really been in love with the phrase lately from um, Paula Freire. It's a paraphrased poem that one of his books is called, but it's basically, we make the road by walking. And I've been living that kind of sentiment for a while lately. There's not a good roadmap for this, but what there is is a good understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And if you are at a loss for where to start, start with a baby step in the direction of understanding. You know, understand something a little bit deeper, then you can take a half step forward once you know what you're trying to do. Where can people find more of, of you and MedPal online? So, you know, as I mentioned, we're a strategic design consultancy. You can find us online, madpow.com. You can check out, you know, work we've done, case studies, if there's, you know, stuff that even I referenced today that might be of interest. We do offer over, you know, throughout the year, webinars, uh, lots of educational material for folks. So I'm not even thinking about, you know, clients who might want to contact us. But if you're a designer, practitioner, engineer, et cetera, you know, check out our site. There's, there's some good stuff there as far as insights and work and um, lots of videos of, of webinars from the past you can find. You can find me on LinkedIn if anybody is, uh, you know, wants to connect, wants to chat more about anything today. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just find me and connect. And I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much, Jen, for joining us today. It's been a very, very inspiring conversation. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>